to digest it. Oh, God. Yeah. Have, you, have your thoughts on the Friends reunion fully formed? Or is it still a fever dream? I, I Honestly, there is no one who has or could put it better than Dave Holmes in the Esquire piece Thank that you. you wrote about it. Uh, the, the, I mean, and I know it's old news to people by now, but it, we have to at least talk about it. Right. It's been, but I mean, it's still fresh. We're all still, still working fresh. through I mean, emotions. The takeaway for me, as you point out in your Esquire piece, is that they make such a point of saying, like, this is the first time they've all been in the same room. First time, they, they, there's only been one other time. and But they never answer why that is. And like, yeah. it's just so, I know everyone's busy, but like 17 years, and these are, the, the, as they say so many times, the only five other people in the world who know what you went through. Yeah. And and they're, they're my family, and, they're, and, and we're friends for life. But then it's like, but are are they? Are you? Yeah, that is that it, it that was glaring. That was really glaring. glaring. And there are so know. many things in it that are glaring that are not acknowledged, and that is you know the biggest problem with it. Right. Um, are you following the uh, uh, Matt LeBlanc as Irish uncle? Uh, of course. Twitter yes. Situation. <laughs> That's yes. yes that yes. is a joy. That is a joy. Um, yeah, and John Butler broke that down uh, beautifully. Good, good. Dear so friend glad. of the show. I'm so glad. Um, it. I still don't know whether I am glad I watched it. Um, yeah. it, it was just, it was just very. It left me with a lot of questions, and I wasn't expecting. Yeah, and it hurt my feelings in a lot of the same ways that the real world reunion did. Honestly, yeah. and part of it is by design that it's it it, it it's just. That kind of nostalgia can be painful, and mm-hmm. you're thinking about how your own life is different from what you thought it was going to be all those years ago, and that you don't talk to the people that you used to watch this thing with mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and just when you're beginning to like come to a breakthrough, um, Cara Delevingne comes through dressed like a, a beetle or whatever. It's hard to know what to say. Um, it's hard. It's hard. Um, but we're in the summertime. Uh, hugs are, hugs are back. Yeah, are you hugging it up? Oh, am I ever? Yes, yeah. And I did, I don't think I I fully appreciated how much I needed it. Hmm. It's just yeah. It's yeah. I I'm 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 very I'm very huggy. Um, you know, expanding the circle just ever so slightly. Um, it, it's it's nice. It, it feels like everything is coming back, perhaps a little too fast, but I'm trying not to overthink it. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe one of these days we'll be hugging our guests again. Ah, in being in the same room. Although, can you imagine at this point, are people going to be like, "Well, now that I know I can only podcast on Zoom, why would why I show would I ever, up in the studio?" There might be some of that. But house? yeah, well, I mean, oh god, I just had a, 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 a sorry, I just had an awful flashback to when we had Dan Savage on. Not because I mean, we had a great time with Dan Savage, great. but when afterward, we basically forced him to hug us, yeah. and I did not learn until later that he is famously anti-touch yeah and that some like and i had consumed a lot of his work but somehow didn't know that until mm-hmm. afterward and it was only later that i realized how excruciatingly obvious it was that he did not want a hug mm. and for some reason we kind of forced it on him and i i don't know i regret that well dan if you're listening Quite a bit i'm very sorry if you need to talk to us <laughs> to uh, help achieve closure we're here 
uh, and we won't lay a hand on you. Um, our our guest this week, extremely huggable. Yes, Daddy. I mean, there's yes, no daddy. other way to say it other than Yes, Daddy. Yes, Daddy is the book. It's our it's our first ever Homophilia Summer Book Club book. What does that mean? I don't know. But we're going to read it. We'll probably discuss it. If you want to talk about it, we're at Homophilia Pod on, uh, on Twitter. Let's use it for good for a change. Jonathan Parks Ramage, which uh, we talk about in the interview it is not jonathan parks ramage uh is the author of yes daddy and um it's it's a it's a thrill ride and it's you know it's kind of gay mandatory reading this summer i think uh so get it wherever you get your your books get it get cultured this summer daddy all right jonathan parks ramage And it's it's Ramage, right? It's actually Ramage. People love to make oh it French. Oh my gosh. Unfortunately, it's not. If only I was gay and French, I think that would truly be perfect. I know. But alas, it's just Ramage, like damage with an R. Mm. Uh, that makes so much more sense. I don't know why. Well, yeah. I guess when you see it and you you, you have you have Ramage in your head, it's hard to get away from that. Some people like to call me Rampage as well. Jonathan Parks Rampage. Oh, I like that. As if I am on perpetually on a rampage. But <laughs> yeah. alas, it's just ravage. <laughs> I uh, once was in line behind uh, a couple gays at the Arclight. And one, one was is. saying to the other how much, yeah, as one often was in the day. <laughs> um, and one said to the other how excited they were for August Osage County. Like, <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Yes. As a child, I once, I once, my dad got a pair of new New Balance shoes, and I had like never heard mm-hmm. of New Balance shoes before. I was like thirteen. I was like, Dad, I love your New Balances, and my <laughs> entire family literally died. <laughs> um, now I just oh. call them New Balances because it's so much better. New Balances, yeah. That's why gays need to be everywhere because we just make that's right so much better. That's but right. I, I am impressed that you never just changed the pronunciation of your last name. You could have gotten away with it so easily. I know. I could have made it so much gayer. Yeah. Well, Alas, it's, it's never too late. Start today. <laughs> yeah. You know who would have done that? Jonah. It's true. It's true. Under, Anything. We'll get into the book, but let's warm oh, I'm up sorry. and take Do it Do you slow. mean our Homophilia Summer Book Club book? <gasps> of course. Oh. Yes, Our Daddy. first ever selection. Oh my yes, god, that's Daddy. so exciting! Isn't it? Um, I love yes, this. Daddy. It's yes, that's fun. Daddy. It's a, the perfect title because it just works for everything. It does. It really does. In life. Um, before we get into it, I'd love to know what other stuff you have been consuming um, in in recent uh, months. TV-wise, movie-wise, book-wise? Yes. Well, I will say in the early portion of the pandemic, me and my boyfriend were... Actually, Ryan, you guys have had Ryan on. Oh, yeah. have. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, yes. Ryan Ryan O'Connell, for those of you listening who don't know his last name. Um, Yeah. Uh, So we were desperate, as we all were, for literally anything to watch. Um, and that's basically all we did is just watch things while cuddling up in our home and being terrified of the world around us. Um, but we actually, we went on like a huge, like nineties erotic thriller kick, um, 
Yes. I mean, though, you can never go wrong, I feel. Do you know what I mean? Like, so we did like some Hand That Rocks the Cradle, Single White Female, mm. Basic Instinct, mm. Fatal Attraction. You know, so we, we were going, we were going through like the, all the 90s hits and even like some obscure ones with like Rebecca De Mornay. And like, there's one with like Rebecca De Mornay and Antonio Banderas. I can't remember the title now. I don't know. We oh, went down like well. a K-hole. What about uh, Sliver? Dave and I oh have God, talked yes. about Sliver quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I don't remember mm-hmm. why, but that one was important to me. With Sharon Stone. Because the greatest Stone. movie of all time is why. <laughs> yeah, Sharon Stone. Uh, William Baldwin at absolute peak William Baldwin. Oh, my God. Yes. Yes. I love a throwback Baldwin moment. And he Ooh. he was it was a peak. It was a peak Billy Baldwin moment in that. It's fantastic. It is such a good movie. It's such a good soundtrack. Yeah. A legitimately good soundtrack. Oh, yeah. Legitimately good so soundtrack. Much yeah. Yes. Um, have you seen um, the original ending of Sliver that is on YouTube? Wait, what? No. Oh, you heard me. Wait, yes, what, what was the original ending? ending? The original ending. I'm just going to spoil it for you and, and let you know that even if you know what's going to happen, it will not diminish your enjoyment of seeing it okay, because it's so weird. So I guess we leave off where Sharon Stone has discovered the the – the control room yes, where all the all cameras the videos, and, uh, yes. yeah yeah with all the monitors and stuff and and she's like mad but a little bit turned on and then <laughs> and then they just just and then they like skip town and leave and like maybe they kill somebody that seems like an important detail that i'm glossing over but there, there's a there's something that they leave because of and then the next thing you see they're in a helicopter together just the two of them and they're laughing away and they and they fly the uh helicopter into a volcano <sighs> and die but it's, Wait, it's but like on purpose. Like a, yeah, like a, a a fun sort of free yeah. Thelma Louise uh, moment. They're yeah. you know oh going down in flames together. Wait, they on purpose, so it's like it's like a they Thelma and Louise into a volcano in a helicopter. Kind of. Wait, yeah. that is wild. Wait, it's cuckoo brains. What? I actually wish that had been the. I am. That is the first thing I'm doing upon leaving this interview because that flying a like, helicopter I, into a that volcano seems very. Seems like a very important cultural moment. It's that big. I, yeah, it's big. I miss. Yeah. Well, also the screen, the audacity of the screenwriting. If that was the original ending, like the yes. amount of people that had to approve it. Yes. You know what? Flying a helicopter into a volcano is a totally realistic and wise decision, and the perfect way to end this crazy ass movie. <laughs> a satisfying experience for the viewer. <laughs> How does it actually um, end? I'm not. Rem- I mean. Spoiler alert, I guess, for anyone who hasn't seen it. It's ending, I think, if I remember correctly. Doesn't she shoot Billy Baldwin? She what? Doesn't she shoot him? Yes, I think she kills him. Does she? No, she doesn't. She shoots out all of the the monitors. And then she's like, you're busted or something. Oh, my God. Like, it's she has some, like, final line to him. And then yes. it just ends. It's so, it's weird, if I remember correctly. It kind of ends in a weird a weird place right. but yeah that Sharon Stone a true national treasure in my oh, personal doubt. opinion doubt. No I mean because obviously and Basic Instinct is the classic of the genre yeah uh, but um, have you seen um, Sharon Stone and Naomi Campbell um, talking just the two of them no also on YouTube it was for one of I guess it was for Sharon Stone's book 
um, Naomi Campbell like interviewed her, and it's I, just it is a full crazy off. Oh my god! And every, everybody wins. Everybody <laughs> wins. <laughs> when icons um, meet, oh my god! Yeah, Naomi Campbell is uh, a trip. I also love me some Naomi Campbell. I mean, what's not to love? Uh, Sharon Stone talks about meeting Nelson Mandela, and and Naomi's like, "Me too." And uh, and Sharon Stone is like, "Did he call you his daughter the way he did me?" And Naomi says, "Granddaughter." But yes, <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> oh my god, wild. I'm obsessed. Wait, yeah, that's so good. Just like who is closer to Nelson Mandela? <laughs> <laughs> the diva off. I love yep. that. Oh my yeah, god! Imagine uh, that. In. What mm. about um, Body of Evidence? Was that uh, oh, I've never seen. Views? Wait, who's in Body of Evidence? It's Madonna and Willem Dafoe. <gasps> wow! Oh my god, this is seems like a sniff oversight. I thought I'd seen all the major ones. That's crazy. I mean, Madonna as Patti Lapone in a Watch What Happens Live performance or, or appearance once called her a movie killer. Um, I yeah, do brutal. feel like, unfortunately, God bless Madonna. We love everything she's done for the community. But I do feel like there is just something that's hard to watch about Madonna in movies. Yeah, it they, it is. I think that they, they, you know, she was hoping that she could have a little run at her own Sharon Stone erotic thrillers. But I don't remember anything about that one except for a sex scene where she is riding willem dafoe and you can see his dick on youtube that's the only thing oh I wow about oh, that's it. important i love i mean yeah. especially as like a gay youth i mean that's what i used to this is that was like my coming of age except when i was coming of age like you had to download like pixelated images from the internet of like mm-hmm. you know leonardo leonardo dicaprio's butt in that like one movie he did where he played gay i can't remember the name of the movie but I total remember- eclipse yes total eclipse yes i think it's total eclipse. Know that one but I remember uh, the JPEG. I don't even know if I saw the movie, quite frankly. I think I really was just in it for the slowly downloading JPEG online as like uh, a horny 15-year-old. I'm telling you, that was a time that new suspense, <laughs> you know? Yes. You had to delay that gratification a little Oh, bit. my God, with the dial-up AOL connection. Yeah, it was just mm-hmm. like, and are my parents going to come home before Leo finishes downloading? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, there was a lot more attention involved. Back in the day. No question. No question about that. When you were 15 and when you weren't downloading uh, JPEGs of Leo, (laughs) what were you up to? Who were you in high school? What was your sort of social scene? Yes. Well, I came out when I was 13 years old. Oh, wow. I mean, as, as anyone listening can probably tell, there's like, it's very hard to put this inside a closet. Like... She's just loud and gay, honey, and has been since the beginning, TBH. And so I came out at 13, and I was, I was going, at the time, I was going to a very conservative prep school called Worcester Academy. And I was the quote unquote only gay person there, but like, LOL, definitely Mm -hmm. wasn't. But uh, for all intents and purposes, I was. So that was actually very scary. Um, Not scary. Well, kind of. Yeah. I mean, there were like, there were these like they had a thirteenth grade. Have you ever heard of this? Mm-hmm. There was a oh 13th... yeah, they do it in Canada. Yeah, well, we weren't in Canada. We were in Worcester, and like Mass- parts of New England. <laughs> yes, yeah. it's so weird. It's called the PG here. It's basically like if you didn't get the athletic scholarship you wanted, and your grades are really shitty, and like you just basically try to do twelfth grade again. But they like call it postgraduate to make it seem like you're basically not being held back in twelfth grade. Anyway, mm-hmm. there were some like horrifically homophobic 
jocks in uh, the PG year. And I remember like getting bullied and like name called and like threatened in the um, uh, cafeteria. And then one day my friend Zahara talked to the lesbian gym teacher who I'm not actually sure if she was a lesbian, but she just seemed like a lesbian. She was coded and, lesbian. Yes. Oh, sorry. She was a science teacher, not gym teacher. Sorry. Oh. Problematic stereotypes. I'm just <laughs> making this gym teacher a lesbian. Um, no, she was uh, the science teacher. And, and she came up to me and she was like, is this boy giving you trouble? Because um, there was one who was particularly bad. And I was like, yeah, he is. And then the next week we had an assembly on acceptance of gay people. And I was the only gay person in school. But let me tell you, I don't know what that lesbian science teacher said to that boy, but he never so much as looked at me again. And so this is why we love our lesbian sisters. Yes, I mean, thank do. God for her. But what does that assembly look like? Who's speaking? What's going on? I think on? it was, I want to say it was like a, a group of faculty that had come together. It was like, I think it was a larger school assembly that was just like, you know, announcements, et cetera. Like we had every week, but there was a special section. It, I was not named, but it was just made, it was brought to everyone's attention that we need to be accepting of all people, especially if they're gay. So yeah, so that was, the, but then, but then after, so I was in that school for like a couple of years and then in, finally in 10th grade, that was eighth grade. So eighth and ninth grade, I was in this like conservative prep school. And then in 10th grade, I went to this fabulous uh, prep school called Walnut Hill School, which was a boarding school for the arts. Um, and mm -hmm. that was just like gay sleepaway camp, honey. That was like fabulous. So like it was, yeah. that was like from night and day. And finally I got to just like, you know, gay it the F out and like live my truth. And like, I was a theater major cause everyone had like their majors. And like, I did the only time like I would get in trouble was for like, I once like, I made, I was student body president and I once like made a crop top out of our like leadership t-shirts for like, le like leadership orientation. And I was told to put on a new shirt because crop tops, I guess, weren't acceptable. A step too far. I know, but I feel like now every gay I see is wearing crop tops. So honestly, I, I feel like I was a trailblazer and that was homophobia because- it Absolutely <laughs> was. It was oppression. That was the voice of oppression. Exactly. I was like, I should be able to express myself however I want. I did break the dress code. There was a light dress code and like it included sleeveless t-shirts. But like, again, I was a trashy, I had the worst fashion sense. I wore like painted on diesel jeans and like tight sleeveless t-shirts. And so I do remember regularly breaking the dress code for sleeveless t-shirts. And I think they just kind of let that one go. But when I did do the belly shirt, that was like one step too far. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Oof. And while it, you're at Walnut Hill and you're living your truth, did you have boyfriends or what was going on dating wise? I did. Well, I started out, I mean, I, I started dating Gaddies in high school, not really, but there was there was someone who had graduated the year before who was like going to Manhattan School for Music and like he was like living in New York and like I met him because he like lived in Massachusetts. So he like came back to visit his friends who were still on campus. And so I thought he was like so glamorous because he like lived in New York City and had just graduated from Walnut Hill. So that was my first boyfriend when I was 15. And I would lie to my parents and say I was going to my friend's house for the weekend and like get my friends to basically call in pretending to be 
their parents. I don't know. It was like this elaborate thing that I could get permissions because because they would let you go like on the train, for example, like into Boston. So I would go like into Boston on the train, hop on a Greyhound and take the weekend to go to New York and visit my freshman in college boyfriend. Oh my God. It was wild. It was like, so I was convinced I was in love. It's just like kind of tragic, like all high school romances are. Do you know what I mean? Like you think it is mm -hmm. the end of the world. And the fact that I was going to New York, I was like, this is the man I love and I am going to marry. Like I just yeah, thought I had like found it. And I was like, this is it. But like, spoiler alert, didn't end up working out. Um, as it turns out, being in a long distance relationship with a freshman in college when you are a sophomore in high school, is difficult. Um, yeah. And so that was my, um, that was my freshman year. Oh, you know who I went to college or high school with is Ben de la Creme. Um, oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, yeah, he was doing drag in high school. And like, we actually, we've reconnected since. Like I ran into him in Provincetown like last summer um, with Gus and like, and we like reconnected and like, yeah, we're working on a post-vaccine reconnection, but I adore uh ben he's like such a sweetie God. and like so talented but yeah he randomly went to my high school and was doing drag back in high school you really That's did crazy. go to a gay paradise of high school <laughs> <laughs> it truly i truly feel so lucky i mean it, it was like a very formative experience for me for sure yeah and like it's a rare thing to for a gay man to be able to be 15 when he's 15 yeah no exactly yes you know and not when he's 30. yeah <laughs> Exactly. You know, I actually had a real adolescence as, gay, as a gay Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. Because when you were saying, you know how, how high school romances are, I, I'm like, not really. I don't know. Yeah. I didn't have those until right. many years later. But when you were then later yourself a freshman in college, did you find yourself looking back at, at that relationship and imagining dating a sophomore well, I mean, in high school? I actually, it's weird. I feel like freshman year of college you're still kind of in high school like actually my freshman year of college I had a boyfriend who was one year younger than me my senior year of high school um and he was a, a junior and so we tried to stay together uh my freshman year of college and it also just wound up falling apart um because like again we're just like in high school like what are we doing but yeah exactly um but uh he so yeah so i don't i don't think so i mean i think that i mean i don't know if i would have dated like a sophomore in high school i think that the fact we had already been dating in high school but i mean i don't know i was like i was so it didn't feel like there was any sort of toxic power dynamic going on it felt very like fun and and glamorous to me but yeah, then I just went off to call. But yeah, so I, I had a boyfriend. Yes, then my junior, he was a junior, I was a senior. And that was a whirlwind romance that ended in flames. But, you know, and then I didn't date at all in college. That's the twist. Hmm. You got Where it all in your system. I, well, I went, to, I went to school in a deep twist for musical theater, LOL. And it was a very, it was it's this conservatory called CCM, which is like, if you know musical theater, you know CCM. If you don't, you don't. And so, um, but it was a very selective and highly competitive musical theater conservatory. Like I only had 12 people in my class. And 
it was in Cincinnati. So the dating pool was extremely small. Like, like granted, it was part of the larger UC campus, but like UC is just filled with like, I don't know, like gross straight people. Do you know what I mean? So like, mm-hmm. and I just tried and tried and tried and I could not for the life of me date anyone in college. No, I get it. I'm from Ohio and Cincinnati is dangerously close to Kentucky, yeah. which sounds uh, hot maybe to some people, but it's not <laughs> what people are imagining. Wait, where did you grow up in Ohio? I grew up central South Ohio, so sort of the like bottom tip, but right in the middle. Mm-hmm. So a couple hours, I guess, east of Cincinnati, but also very close to the Kentucky border. Yes. Did you ever go to mask m-a-s-q-u-e the gay club in i want to say dayton no i would i, I didn't say I, I sewed no no gay oats in ohio sadly oh okay <laughs> did you I, go to mask in I, dayton? I did go to mask uh in dayton and we i wonder if it's still open because it was like it was like cincinnati had some like tragic gay bars like there was like a tragic karaoke bar and like a, a hamburger Mary's that was just a little sad. Like you weren't dating people in, in Cincinnati, unfortunately. Um, yeah. I mean, Cincinnati's lovely and I don't want to no shade to Cincinnati, but I don't know. I was not as a, as a, it was, it was a small gay pool. Um, it's gotten gayer though. I think I, I went back recently and it's kind of like been like revitalized and it's, it's crazy. But, um, but yeah, that mask was like a big, like, like kind of mm. circuity club so it like felt like a a big deal and like we were all just so desperate for like some sort of like gay socialization that we would drive however many hours to Dayton and um we knew someone who like lived there and so we like crashed on I don't know it was like again tragic and college like I feel like I slept on someone's like wall-to-wall carpeting in order to make pilgrimage <sighs> to Masqua. But I think I, yeah. I enjoyed it at the time. And I feel like we really did. lived our lives because it was exciting. We were in the club, like in Queer as Yeah. Can I tell you, I can see and smell Masqua. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I can, I can definitely see it, but I can smell yes. the, the, the bar cleaning fluid and the Stoli Raz creating yes. sort of a, yes. and a multi-layered bit, smell. A sweat just hanging in the air. Yes. Yeah. yeah. A little bit of uh, body spray and, oh, yeah. uh-huh. uh, and Red Bull. Yes. Yeah. Yes. There, there was, there was a, it's tragic counterpart in Cincinnati called the Dock. But the dock was like a little bit scary. It, it, it was like in like a warehouse and like, it just wasn't quite converted enough. Do you know what I mean? Like it wasn't, it was still a little too much warehouse and not enough club yet. Like, so, yeah. so Masqua was, yeah, very special. Also the occasional- very Midwest. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, but yeah, I just, I could not for the life of me get laid in college. It was, it was, I also like really, dressed like a again like a crazy person like i i i had like blue french i started out the year with like blue french connection like a blue french connection beret that i wore everywhere like true true tragedy like true fashion tragedy i was just like so yeah i don't know it was there was a lot happening um what message is a is a young gay teen trying to send with a blue french connection beret just I, that i i'm from a big i'm from I'm so a bigger gay. place i think i guess that's it i guess that's it, it. it was just like i mean it was just too it was too much and then i actually 
Oh my God, talk about layers of weird homophobia. But I remember in school, I was like, basically, it was like, there was a cut system. So like, they basically would like cut people halfway through freshman year, the end of freshman year, halfway through sophomore year, end of sophomore year. Oof. So basically you have to re-audition to stay in the program. So in one of my critiques, I was basically just called out for being too gay, which is wild because we were in musical theater school. But <laughs> I mean, it was so, it was, there was a lot of internalized homophobia going on among the staff because it's also like they're teaching you how to be like a leading man in musical theater, which is like so ridiculous because again, everyone's gay. But I, I was told to, I will never forget this horrific critique given to me by the head of the program. And he told me I needed to share, S-H-A-R-E, not share, C-H-E-R. <sighs> Which is like yeah. kind of a sick burn, but also like, <laughs> no. like it was like really like hurtful to hear as like a gay beret wearing musical theater major. Do you know what I mean? And this yeah. was for sure a gay man giving you this critique. Oh, yes. yes? 100%. Yeah. The gayest man. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But it's like, yeah. but it's weird. Like they were like trying to, again, train us, train the gay out of us to be like, leading men because also at the time i mean i guess there weren't really a ton of gay roles in musical theater i guess there maybe still aren't a lot of queer roles in musical theater it's weird for an art form yeah. that's basically run by gay men essentially um it's not that there's not that much gay representation i think mm. i don't know so then were you pursuing musical theater after you finished the program did you go you go back to new york yes i went to i went to new york city and worked in a horrific gay restaurant um which shall remain nameless um oh. <laughs> sorry um uh and and yeah i mean it was it was actually it was it was a little tough for me because like all my a lot of my friends i would say the majority of my class like booked broadway shows pretty within like the first year of being there and i did not um and so that was kind of like a blow and then I was waiting tables at this horrific gay restaurant where I was like regularly sexually harassed and assaulted and it was just kind of a nightmare. Um, and finally I did this like horrific regional production of Beauty and the Beast where I played the Beast and it was, I mean me as the Beast, LOL. But it was like so bad and I was just like, it was it was the nail in the coffin. I was like, I actually can't do this anymore. I was in like a random town in like upstate New York doing like shitty regional theater. And I was just like, I don't love this enough to like do this, uh, to do this production of Beauty and the Beast. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was just mm -hmm. like, tale as old as time, honey. And I was not having it. Um, <laughs> and so And so that's when I really, that's when I fully quit. Um, and left that chapter of my of my life behind. But yeah, early twenties in New York was an intense period. Yeah, of course. All I want to know is what restaurant this is. But we will. I mean, I have <laughs> a very it? strong guess that one that I, I was too. very strongly visualizing while reading the book. Let's uh, let's talk about the book. Yeah, maybe while we are, we'll get you to slip the name of the restaurant. But um, yes, Daddy, the Homophilia Summer Book Club. A selection of 2020, one, oops, uh, is uh, about a struggling young gay writer in New York, gets into a relationship with an older playwright who's, you know, rich and successful. And then um, they 
go off to the, this compound of the Hamptons and things take very dark turn and it's about ambition and abuse and power and shame. So anyway, um, I know everyone asks you this, but I have to know how much of this is autobiographical. Totally. Um, I mean, I, the true answer, only my therapist will know. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but I, I like to say that the book is personal and not autobiographical. There are definitely, there's definitely a lot that I pulled from, you know, during that time in my early 20s, when I was in New York, when I was really lost, I, I was dating a I dated a string of very older, wealthy, uh, often famous men um, because I was, I think, looking for direction. And I thought I was also working in this gay restaurant, which was patronized by mainly older, wealthy gay men. And I was kind of thrust into this scene where I thought I, I was basically like taught that my body was a commodity, essentially. Um, and I was basically encouraged to use that commodity as a way to gain some sort of like social currency with like older men. And so I just thought, I was just kind of like drawn into this, this world. And I was like, oh, well, this is what it means to be gay in New York, which is like not true at all. But Mm. I think that for me, that is kind of what my early experience was like. And so I just, I pursued a lot of, uh, again, daddies essentially. Um, And I think that you know, what I finally, this book is kind of a way for me to look back on that period of my life and kind of filter it through the lens of fiction. And I think it also helped me work through a lot of my feelings about my relationships in, in that era and kind of um, how I was moving through the world. So, so I think that, you know, it was, I, I like to say personal, not autobiographical right um but but you know i mean i also i think that it's i i wanted to work in a milieu that i felt familiar with because i knew that that if i knew the details it would come through on the page and so i i did steal a lot of details from real life um but you know again it's it's all kind of altered and, and fictionalized um so so yeah i mean that's that's kind of where it was at um but I think that the book, yeah, it was kind of a huge, I mean, I've talked a lot about this with my therapist. Like, I, I think I think I'm still unpacking the ways that kind of my personal um, journey is reflected and refracted um, through mm. the narrative of the book. And, I mean, Jonah's journey, Jonah's experience of his his body being a commodity and him equating that with just like this is is gay life in New York is very dark and and fucked up. Um, And uh, he obviously has a lot of healing to do in the book, hopefully after the book is over. But for you, uh, is there still is that is that a thing that you are still unpacking the idea that you're body was a commodity that your youth and your physical beauty equaled value like where where are you with that now yeah i mean i i i mean this was like a long period of my life and i think that it took me a while to unlearn that it took me a while to basically learn to be my own daddy essentially 
Mm. Um, I think I was looking for some sort of validation, love, security, success. I was looking for all these things in someone else because I thought that this other person, this daddy could essentially essentially be a father figure to me. Um, and what I learned after many years and many failed relationships is yeah, you have to be your own daddy. Um, mm. And so I think that was that was a huge part of it. And like, and 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 yeah, I mean, it, it was very bizarre. I mean, I, I remember working at the restaurant. Also, we all had aliases. Like the first thing you were given, like when you worked at the restaurant, was a nickname, and then you were only referred to by that nickname. My nickname was Shiloh, and so I was known to all of the customers and regulars as Shiloh. I introduced myself to my tables as Shiloh. My boss often bragged that he didn't know my real name. So there was this weird performance that I essentially did in the restaurant and then that we all did. I mean, it was not unlike, you know, a, a stripper choosing their stripper name. Um, obviously the context is more shishi and you have gay men who are paying $40 for steak, but the concept is still kind of the same. And it was kind of dehumanizing in a way because it also, I was playing this, this role essentially for these customers. And I pretended to be like stupid and ditzy and I love getting my ass grabbed. And like, it, it was just like this weird role that I got lost in. And it was, I feel like by almost by design of the restaurant, itself or the owner i mean it was just part of this like kind of toxic uh culture there but yeah i mean that was and that was hard i mean i remember i quit because i i got a job in uh tv production and my boss was shocked he was like why on earth would they ever want to hire you shiloh like no offense but your brains aren't the best asset or like whatever I don't remember exactly what he said but the sentiment was like you're too fucking stupid like you're only you're basically like a piece of meat which is which was the message that was constantly given to us while we worked at this Jeez. restaurant so so that was I think that took a lot to and that's you know it's like my again my early 20s when my identity is being shaped so when so so when someone's telling you that you're stupid and only worth as much as your body is worth you have to fight that and have to fight believing that as well. So that, I think that is something that took a while to also unpack. But now, I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm, I mean, writing this book is part of being my own daddy. I mean, I feel like, again, it's like, it's like, it's, it's, it's kind of stepping into my own narrative and my own power. And, and I think honestly kind of reclaiming my twenties and saying, okay, this happened. And, this is a chapter that's now over and and you know i can put it in this book between these two covers and put it on my bookshelf <laughs> yeah <laughs> so how keeping it inside yeah yeah so how does it feel to have something that is so personal and and has helped you you know achieve closure and now it's an item on a shelf you know it's, or a thing that people can leave reviews on amazon yeah no totally i mean it's it's interesting because the the process of doing the book was so personal and I wrote it over the course of years and for so long, no one saw this. And this was just kind of like my space to like work out 
whatever I was working out on the page. And then, yes, you're kind of thrust into this very public sphere. And it it is odd. There, there is a little bit of a of a disconnect, I guess I would say, between like promoting this book and then like actually living inside the book and creating it. Um, but I have loved connecting with people. I mean, especially people who uh, resonate with the story, whether they've been through sexual assault or conversion therapy, or just grew up in an evangelical church, because um, the narrator has an evangelical background for people who don't know. Um, and so that has been absolutely wonderful. And the response has just been like so overwhelming and so many people are loving the book. And it's been, it's actually been really gratifying and kind of overwhelming, um, you know, cause you're meeting people at a really intense place, especially if they're resonating with something in this, which, which happened to them. So, so it's, it's overwhelming and I feel very grateful and humble and, happy that that this book is out here connecting with other people and i just don't pay attention to the trolls although one person did tell me that i should just go to therapy and never publish another book again and that i was kind of pissed about but then i got over it (laughs) a person in real life or like a random no no no, just random internet troll um you know that was share share guy yeah exactly he's coming he's he's coming back for his revenge yeah yeah yeah. No, but for the most part, it's been it's been great to have it out in the universe and 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 finally share this thing also that I just been working on for so long. So you mentioned that Jonah comes from an evangelical home and religion plays a, a major role in the book. What did, did you come from evangelical background? I did not come from I did my parent my father was a minister. Um, not evangelical, um, but I wanted to um, depict, I mean, as I, I also work as a journalist and I've worked with a lot of um, queer Christian activists and um, organizers and people who are trying to reclaim their faith after being subjected to trauma by the evangelical church or any other sort of church. Um, and I, I wanted to include it, I think because, um, I think because conversion therapy is still something that we need to talk about. Um, uh, Gerard Conley, who did Boy Race, actually gave the book a wonderful review, and he's been one of the most amazing supporters of this. And that was also really important, I think, to me, just to have someone say, "Yes, I recognize this," and this is part of you know what we need to be talking about when we're talking about conversion therapy and trauma from the church. Um, But I also, I think, wanted something I haven't really seen a lot of represented uh, in media is is someone who is trying to reclaim their faith in a non-toxic way. And not to give any spoilers, but, you know, there's a character who goes through attempting to to somehow rectify this thing inside of him. Because I think for a lot of queer people, and I think almost any queer person has experienced some level of, if not trauma, at least oppression, discrimination, because of the evangelical church, because of the evangelical church's grip on the right, essentially, in our country. And so, you know, I think that queer people often put up walls the minute they hear about religion, understandably, because I think, again, so many of us have been um, traumatized by the church. Um, 
But I think that a lot of people also have that religion as a foundational part of their identity. And so it's not so easy. I mean, I've met so many people um, who are so grateful to have reclaimed something that's not toxic because for so long they felt like, oh, my faith is actually really important to me, but it also is oppressing me. So how to resolve that? Um, inside myself and so there are there's a whole like wave of ex-evangelical um, communities and ex-evangelical churches um, that have uh, that often have a very progressive intersectional approach to social justice as well and are also very queer and queer friendly and and so I wanted to present I wanted to show someone who at least is potentially considering how he might reclaim if that's something that he wants to do, um, kind of as a different path forward um, for queer people, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about you and Ryan O'Connell. <laughs> how did you meet? We met on Twitter, actually, of all places. Really? Neither of us are on it anymore um, because it's a terrifying and toxic platform. Um, and, but, uh... but um, yeah, we met. Um, he followed me and I messaged him and I was like, hi, hon, we should meet up for drinks sometime. And it's interesting, we actually started off as friends um, and because I, I had just moved to LA when I, when I met him. And so he was like one of the first people I met. And so we just, we started off as friends um, and I actually, first dated another one of our close friends i mean you know as gay people do um and and henry and i broke up maybe after like a couple months and then ryan and i just i mean we were just kind of like cut from the same cloth and we're so similar and we're just like vibing and then it was like a very like when harry met sally situation and it was kind of like, will they, won't they? And it was a little scary, but I remember it was New Year's Day, actually. We had gone to Casita de Campo for uh, a Mexican uh, post New Year's Eve hangover dinner. And then we like rolled mm -hmm. to Akbar and the whole crew, like we were all hanging out. Everyone basically like kind of filtered out until finally it was just the two of us. And we just ended up making out in Akbar. So, Thank you, Akbar. The start. Thank so you, many Akbar. beautiful relationships. <laughs> yes. And then it was like kind of terrifying because it was like, oh my God, am I going to ruin this really good friendship? And like we had, I like also like kind of like intertwined friendship groups. So like if this thing like blew up, it was going to be like kind of messy and ugly. And then it did blow up. Like Ryan kind of had like a panic attack about commitment and broke up with me briefly for like two weeks in which time I immediately started dating someone else and he immediately got jealous so it worked and then he nice. came back um and was like wait 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 I want to do this um and then we did and we've been together ever since um so yeah and I how long has it been oh my god it's, it's probably been I think six and a half years no. Wow. Oh wow. Oh, so we we heard about your relationship from Ryan's point of view when he was on the show. Yes. That me. I should. I wish I had gone back and re-listened. See if he dragged me. Get his story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but it's been seven adorbs years or six and a half adorbs years, and yeah, it's been great. We just we just moved into 
during the pandemic, we moved into uh, our new house in Echo Park, which has been like a third member of our relationship. Being in a house is just like almost a full-time job, but I am loving it. So yeah, now we're cozy and cute and living our Echo Park truth. I love it. Is there talk of marriage or any anything, any further it, milestones? Interesting. In I think we wanted to get a house instead of having a lavish crazy wedding um i don't know if you guys have seen the netflix original series marriage or mortgage um which came out in the pandemic yep. but my answer that both of our answers that we were screaming every time at the screen was mortgage um just because i feel like it's a little bit better i mean whatever people have very sentimental reasons for getting married and of course it's very important um but I don't know. I think I think neither of us place as much stake. Like I'm not. I didn't have like a hope chest in my childhood bedroom, like with my wedding dress for my future wedding. You know what I mean? Like I I'm not someone who's like romanticized weddings, probably because I grew up as a queer person, and and so I think we definitely do want to do it, and we have talked about uh, our dream. I mean, our dream would to be to get married in Provincetown. So we go there every summer. And we just love a gay destination, which is going to be a troll to get to for all of our guests. So I apologize in advance to anyone invited to our future wedding because you're going to have to get a house in Provincetown and also like get on a million planes, trains, automobiles, and ferries in order to get there. But it's going to be worth it. It's worth it. I, that's, worth it. you know what? That's, that's what I'm saying and that's what I'm sticking to. But yeah, so marriage is definitely something we want to do. I think. For us, we wanted to like get settled in a house first and kind of like, you know, spend our resources that way to make a cozy home first. And then, you know, we'll get around to the wedding. We technically are engaged, but and, like, I was going to say, I had a ring. Yeah. But, but I mean, it's, it's like a very long engagement because I, we're just like, again, focused on getting this house together, but also like COVID happened. We were actually thinking about doing it like in the fall uh, and then COVID hit and then it was like, Oh no, 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 no. So, so I think, yeah, I think maybe next year question mark. Don't hold me to it, but yeah, it's definitely in the future. I love it. Jonathan Parks, Romage. <laughs> yes, make it French, baby. Love it. By the way, I, I, I just have to tell you that I love so much your version of the Gloria Steinem quote that, you know, you, you she advises women to be the man that they want to marry, right? Yes. I think that's a Gloria Steinem quote. That yours is to be the daddy that you always wanted to date. I mean, that is profound. Yes, be your own daddy, honey. Let's Words put it on t-shirts <laughs> and cut them off just above the exactly right. crop tops. We're crop putting them on baby. crop tops for 2021. <laughs> yes, Daddy. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you so much. 